0: Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Batted
1: down and intercepted. Intercepted by J.J. Watt.
0: Touchdown, Houston! J.J. Watt, the rookie from Wisconsin,
1: who began his college career at Central Michigan. Left delivering pizza. He said, what am I doing with my life? Walked on at Wisconsin. Became an All-American, an academic All-Big Ten and scoring a touchdown in his rookie season
0: for the Houston Texans. In today's show, we say goodbye to the legend. Thanks for listening to the Best Houston Sports Podcast. Well, one of the most iconic chapters in Houston sports history ended a week ago. We'll share our J.J. Watt memories. But while a chapter ended for the Texans, you can forget chapters with the Rockets because they need to just throw out the whole book. We look at their miserable recent play, and you're going to hear about the latest Astros signing. So good news for them. Joining me is my co-host and regular sidekick, fellow H-Town sports junkie and longtime journalist, Stephen Kerr. And Stephen, this week's show running a little late because like most of our listeners, I can imagine, I had no electricity for the last three days.
1: Oh, my goodness. We, we're going to let a, a silly little winter storm get in the way of our podcast, Robert. What's wrong with us, anyway? Um, yeah, I know. Of course, I live in Austin, and you live in Houston, and and we we both got hit pretty hard. Now, I was one of the more fortunate ones. I had a, a power outage last Thursday, believe it or not, way before—not not way before the storm started, but way before most people lost power. Mine was out for about 12 hours. I've had power since then but I've had no water for two days. So <laughs> I'm still kind of in the, the throes of this thing. And, uh, you know, and, and I got to thinking, too, with with all this going on with the weather, just like, you know, after the Astros cheating scandal last year, we had COVID hit. You know, for, it just seems like it takes a major thing called life to put things in perspective as far as sports is concerned. And I know we're going to talk about J.J. Watt and the Texans and, the Rockets' mishaps and things of that nature. But, man, when when you start going through life, whether it's bad weather or COVID or what have you, once again, we're just reminded sports is an escape. It, it's not, you know, we, we make it out to be a lot more than it is, but at the end of the day, life usually trumps it, and that's what's happened again this week. Did we need another reminder? I think, Houston, we've had plenty of reminders. We've had COVID. We've had Hurricane
0: Harvey uh yeah we 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 understand what Houston fans would love, Stephen, is an actual escape instead of the same horrors that they've discovered over the last uh, few few months and last year and I, I guess the lesson we learned this past week is once one watt leaves Houston,
1: they all leave Houston. They all leave. You have no watts, yeah, I saw that you I think you tweeted that or you it was on Facebook. That was brilliant, I, because, it, but it, it sums it up very nicely <laughs> as far as, you know, just as soon as J.J. Watt leaves, he takes all the power with him. Uh, too bad he couldn't have taken Jack Easterby with him when he left, but uh, no, that that's still here. Uh, yeah, but apparently we, we aren't used to all this, Robert, because look at how much yelling and screaming we've been doing over the last few months about the Texans. So once again, I guess we do need to be reminded that, yes, Even Jack Easterby isn't the only one who doesn't know what they're doing. We can just put all the blame on ERCOT now for all our problems, (laughs) because a lot of people are anyway. I wish it was as simple as what you have to do with the
0: water alert. We just boil the water. We get out all the germs. Can we boil the Texans to
1: get out all the germs? Is that possible? Yeah. Boil boil all the Texans' germs, get them out, and then start fresh. Yeah. I, I wish it were as simple as that. Absolutely. Well- you know,
0: I, I have to ask you, just to start with, what did you think? If you can remember that far back, it seems like it's been a year ago. But what did you think when you heard J.J. <laughs> Watt had asked for and been given his release?
1: Well, I, it certainly came as no surprise, Robert. But I really was disappointed that the Texans didn't try harder to trade him. I know there was some interest. And and, and I'm not saying they would have gotten a first-round pick for him, but surely they could have gotten a third-round Maybe they could have snuck in and got a second round. I don't know, but they could have gotten something for him. But at the end of the day, you know, J.J. Watt deserves what he has because he's J.J. Watt. It, you can't blame him for asking, right? I mean, here's a guy that he he wants to play for a championship team. As much as we love J.J. Watt and all the great memories he's brought us, you can't blame him for asking. It's just amazing, you know, that the Texans just they gave it. They, they gave it to him. They didn't even hesitate. They just let him walk out the door. I just, I, I would have liked to have seen them get something for him because I can't believe that they couldn't have traded him, even to a team that he preferred to go to. And there's a list. He's got his list, and I know there's a, a number of teams that have already expressed interest. At least half a dozen, maybe even more than that. So, I just think the Texans could have gotten something done and still given JJ what he wants. Both sides could have won. The time to trade him was in the middle of the season because
0: he makes such a big salary that at that point, you know, teams would be like, oh, I get two years basically of playoff runs with J.J. Watt uh, if I make this deal. And, you know, at, at, at the same point, you know, you talk to J.J. and you say, "Okay, we've got a deal in place with this team. If you will go to this team, they just want to renegotiate your contract. Potentially, so we you've got a it a, a longer contract, but slightly less money on their books. You you get out of Houston, um, you don't have to deal with this. But there was also you know stuff that you heard, Stephen. I, I saw that uh, JJ even later in the season thought, hey, the the Texans are going to make some good moves potentially in the off season. They were probably promised that Jack Easterby was going to be out of the picture. You know, I, I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that he watched what they did in the offseason, didn't like it, didn't like the way the Desha- Deshaun stuff was going because, you know, Cal McNair, the McNairs, don't like change. They don't like uh, dealing icons. It took a long time before they finally gave up on Andre Johnson. They didn't refuse to give up on Brian Cushing and some other guys that we were like, why are they keeping these guys around? They're not any good, but that's the way they operate. And so I I just feel like, that uh, JJ, you know, he, he was hoping that potentially, you know, they would go in a different direction and the Texans weren't going to deal him. And then it, it got to a point where he's just like, yeah, I, I I, don't see you guys going in the right direction. And Deshaun Watson don't want to be here. So I don't want to be here.
1: And you know what, Robert, I, I think that to me is the way to handle it. And this is typical JJ wide. I mean, the guy just handles everything with such class and and with such intelligence and if you ask me, this is a prime lesson for Deshaun Watson to learn from, that maybe he himself could have even handled this a little bit better than than what he has, and that J.J. just handled it the way he did. He got what he wanted. Now, you know, the Texans certainly aren't going to release Deshaun Watson. <laughs> certainly better not. But I think this is a lesson in how you handle a situation like that. You wait it out. You see what happens. And then if you don't like it, you go to them— directly and say, this is what I want. And Deshaun has made it known that he wants to be traded, but it's been, I guess, more what I would call a passive-aggressive mode rather than just getting together with the McNair's and saying, look, guys, I know you've tried to do this and tried to do that, but it's not working for me. I want out. Let's get this going. J.J. went directly to them and did that, and now he he got what he wanted. And there are two di- different situations,
0: and it was stupid just ignorant, stupid, whatever you want to call it, of a lot of national people to say, well, look, it's J.J., so they gave him everything, and they don't want to give Deshaun everything. Look, J.J., he's got one year left, $17 million. They don't want to pay J.J., if you think about it. I, well, Casario and the people and, and with the money and the cap stuff go, well, we don't want to pay J.J. $17 million this year. While J.J., you trade him. And the contract was just renewed and it's a mess. You, you basically forfeit a lot of that money directly to him, this guaranteed money. It's a totally different situation. And Deshaun
1: is in his prime. This is a guy going into his prime. No, I understand the situations are different. And, and you're talking about a player that in JJ Watt, that quite honestly, as much as we hate to say it, he's not on the upside of his career, but I'm just talking about the way the whole situation was handled on both sides. And, you know, the Texans just continue to bungle things. But in, I'm, I'm talking about in Deshaun's case, per, perhaps it's a lesson in how you deal with a situation that you don't like. That That's really what I was referring to.
0: So off the top of the podcast, we heard J.J. Watts pick six in the playoffs against the Bengals in his rookie season. Steven, is that his signature play as a Texan? Or is there another play you think of when you reminisce about J.J.?
1: Well, it is for me, because I think that's when it really got him on my radar. I mean, I, I obviously knew who J.J. was, but I, I think it just it, it, it set in motion the career that J.J. really carved out for himself. Yeah, there's, you know, the memory of him catching the touchdown pass. That is pretty cool, too. But I, I just go back to that interception for me, personally. I, I mean, I remember it. I was sitting on my patio at my apartment, uh with uh listening to the game i didn't for some reason i couldn't get it on television that the playoff game with the bengals and i just remember that i remember what i was doing when it happened and i just remember practically knocking over my patio chair and table in such excitement when he did that and it not only changed the course of that game but it really set in motion who jj watt became at least in my mind the bengals
0: interception without question is, is the moment for me, uh, as you said. And it's the moment when I knew this was somebody special. This was somebody different. It's the moment when he arrived on the scene nationally, it exemplified what made him different from any other defensive end that ever lived. And I'm going to have a little bit of a a thank you for JJ later uh, for what he's given Houston. But I I just want to go through at this point, my top five JJ Watt plays. And number one uh, for me as incredible as the Bengals interception was, and it was the first time that you saw that potential, the interception against the bills, EJ Emanuel throws a pick six to JJ where JJ snags it at the line of scrimmage and outruns everybody for an 87 yard touchdown. It happened so quickly,
1: Steven. It took me a second just to realize he actually had the football in his hands. You know that's something that a lot of people don't talk about is just the the quickness of JJ. I mean, we talk about his size and force and strength, but that play, I think it it demonstrated just. I, I mean, it's like you blink your eye and the guy's gone. It was that that's what was so remarkable to me about that play. Yeah, absolutely, it would be up there uh, along with that Bengals interception and just the the quickness of with which it happened. It's like you go, wait, what just happened there? Oh, just unreal. And and the other thing
0: is. Uh, He had done it before, so it really took something for you to go, wow, with him doing one of those uh, interceptions at the line of scrimmage. Number two, I have the Bengals interception because of the circumstances and everything we talked about. Number three, you mentioned touchdown catch. He had touchdown catches, but the one that stands out is that over-the-shoulder touchdown he caught as a tight end against the Browns, where he had a defender draped all over him. That's the one I was referring to, right. That was unreal, Stephen, because... You know, he catches it, you know, dragging his feet in the side of the end zone. Like, he's been doing this his whole life, and he's doing this for the first time in the NFL we've ever seen him uh, do a, a catch like this. But it was only maybe the second or third time they'd ever
1: thrown it. to I think the first one might have been against the Raiders, but that's the one that really sticks out, like you said. I would say that's my number two behind the Bengals interception, and I know you have it at number three. So, I mean, it, it's, it, it's hard to kind of put them in the order. It's kind of a personal thing, but... Yeah, that was just so incredible and the fact that he had somebody draped all over him. I mean, do you think the guy had, had played tight end his whole career in the NFL the way he made that catch?
0: Number four on my list is the Thursday night game against the Colts where he, he jumps on the ground on a fumbled snap and then runs it back 45 yards for a touchdown. The amazing thing about that play, as I rewatched it over the last few days, is how quickly he got
1: to the ball in the scrum. And then got up and ran, Steven. Yeah, once again, it demonstrates his quickness. And in this case, it it was a fumble return. I mean, the guy can, you know, he can sack quarterbacks. He can catch passes. He can intercept passes and and run pick sixes. And he can run fumble returns for picks. I mean, what what can this guy not do, honestly? Then for number five, I was trying to think, uh,
0: is there another one that just jumps off the page for me? So what I thought of is there there wasn't a single play on the field that matches the four that I just mentioned. But the thing that sticks out, of course, number five for me is everything that he did during Hurricane Harvey, all the money he raised, all the lives he affected, all the time he spent. That was my number five. Did, did I miss a
1: play or anything, Stephen? For you? Well, other than the interception he made this year, which we you know we thought was so great because it it could it was obviously it turns out now. And we thought it might be at the time the, the last great play he might have made for the Texans. But, no, I think that particular thing with Hurricane Harvey, it not only, you know, he was already on the map as a player, but I think it moved him even further up in the level of just as an entire, as a whole person on and off the field. You know, you're you're talking about a guy who makes an impact off the field when you start thinking about, are they the greatest in the city that they played in, you know, it's not just about what they do on the field, but how they impact off the field. And I, I think if anything that put JJ right in the thick of anyone else in the country of just, you know, how valuable are they to their community, not just to their team, but to their community that they're impacting.
0: You led me right into that perfectly because that's what I want to hit on. Because You know, I saw J.J. up close for five seasons when I was covering the team. I I, I couldn't be there, Stephen, when he was the first guy to get to the facility or is the last guy to leave, but I saw him during training camp and practice when he gave you everything he had. Ask the offensive lineman about that. I was there watching him with the fans, talking to little kids, signing autographs, grabbing people's cell phones and taking selfies with them. I wish I could talk to him about what he did for the Barry family. I never got that chance, but remember the Barry kids and how they lost their mom and dad in the audio accident. Yeah. And I don't know if you know this, Stephen, but Robin Berry, their mom went to elementary school with me. I lost touch with her after elementary school, but I knew people who knew her, what he did for those kids, not just with the one phone call or one visit, but over months, over years that meant so much to me personally, because it was somebody that I used to know and somebody that my friends knew. And also I remember early in his career, Stephen, hearing the stories on Christmas about him showing up at Houston fire stations, the Bel Air police department, right? After they lost an officer and at the children's hospital with gifts for kids. I mean, the stories about him, they go on and on. It was especially fun in those early years, Stephen, when his celebrity wasn't so big, he could walk around without a mob.
1: Yeah, I I did not know that, that you had a personal connection with Robin Barry, but I do remember that story. And, you know, just combined with all those things, Robert, I I just feel like this is why J.J. Watt has to be the greatest Houston athlete to this point, not just because of what he did on the field, but off the field. Look, I watched Earl Campbell when he played for the Oilers. I watched Hakeem Olajuwon when he played for U of H and the Rockets. I've, of course, watched Jose Altuve and, Craig Biggio, Jeff Bagwell, you know, all those guys, you know, down through the years, all of them are great, obviously. But, and, and I'm not saying that none of them had an impact on the community. Certainly they, they had their share. They did their share of things in the community. But man, when you talk about the entire picture of a person and an athlete, I just don't think, you know, and Nolan Ryan, you can put him in, I, I would say Nolan Ryan might even be the closest if you're talking about a true icon off the field as well as on the field, Nolan Ryan would probably be a close second or as close to second as anybody to JJ Watt in my mind. That's what I was going to ask you next because and I don't know how you want to
0: evaluate this whether it's that criteria, whether it's him as a player criteria, but where does he fit among those Houston sports icons in team sports anyway? Is he you know, is he below Hakim? Is he above Nolan, Earl, Biggio, Bagwell, Altuve? I mean, what order can you put those guys in if you can put them in some sort of order?
1: Yeah, that's the question, if you can. Now, if you're talking about on-field accomplishments, I, I still believe, you know, Hakeem is, is my number one guy. And I know he brought him two championships, and he, he wasn't the only cog in the mesh, but he was, certainly was a major factor you know, I, I mean, it's hard to say with J.J. because, yes, he certainly impacted the Texans in a great way on the field. You know, basketball is a, a different sport than football. It only takes sometimes one or two players to make a difference. In football, it's a lot harder to do that, especially if you're on the defensive end. You can change the course of a game, and, and J.J. did that. You know, I, I, it's it's awfully hard to go after that for me. I mean, I could take any order, and it probably people would, would slash it to pieces. You know, I, I would have to say, I mean, Nolan Ryan didn't bring the Astros a World Series. Neither did Craig Biggio and Jeff Bagwell, but they were certainly instrumental in getting them to the playoffs and getting them deep into the playoffs at some point. So I've got to put those guys up there. Jose Altuve, I mean, you know, again, it it, it it's another weird situation. Yes, he got the team a World Series, but of course it's clouded in controversy. So where do you put him? So, yeah, the top five, it, it gets a little cloudy once you get Past number one, once you figure out who that true number one is, at least for me, it does. Elijah Wan's my true number one because not only did he bring the
0: two championships, but he also was here for such a long time and he was here with the Cougars and what he did with the Houston Cougars. So, you know, you put it all together and he was in Houston as an icon from basically 82 to the end of the 90s, which is a hell of a long run. And I know Biggio... Had a super long run as well, but not with two different franchises, not with the championships and all the other stuff. And, and then I think it's JJ, just because uh, he he was as good as anybody that I've ever seen in any sport, and that includes, you know, Nolan when he was playing for the Astros. That includes Biggio and Bagwell when they were in their prime, and that includes Earl Campbell. And I, I you know, I I think Earl might get lost in the shuffle of a lot of this stuff, but. Earl, with what he was at his ceiling, which was those three years, uh, first three years in Love You Blue, is right there with any of those guys. But yeah, it for me, it's it's Elijah Juan, then JJ. and then I would say Earl and Nolan are pretty much like almost a dead heat at at number three. Uh, Baggio and Bagwell almost get tied together, so it's hard to pull one away from the other one, but. And 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 you said that you know the the tough thing with Altuve right now is we're, we're we've got the weird circumstances. But does, does that is
1: that fair? What I just said? I think it's fair. And here's the thing: both with Nolan Ryan and Earl Campbell, they they transformed when when they came to the teams. Like when when Earl came to the Oilers in '78 as a rookie, he took a mediocre team and transformed it into a great team. Now, obviously, they had some other great players. They had Dan Pastoreni, they had Kenny Burrow. They had Elvin Bethea. They had Robert Brazil. They they had some great players. But Earl changed the whole complexion of the offense when he got there. He made such an impact right away that he allowed Pastorini. He he just gave him yet another weapon and a running game that that he could use to balance the passing game. So in my mind, when Earl first came on the scene, when he burst onto the scene, he took the Oilers and put them over the hump that they were trying to get over. And the same with Nolan Ryan. When he came to the Astros— he, he made that team into what they were once he merged with all the rest of the players that the Astros had, and they had that great season in 1980 and, and several more after that. So, you know, when you're talking about them being neck and neck, I think a lot of the reason is just because how they impacted their teams once they got there and then just kept it throughout.
0: I had a friend on social media say, oh, JJ, yeah, who cares? He doesn't affect winning. And I just think that is the biggest load
1: of crap ever. Well, it is hogwash. And we've already talked about some of that, like some of the plays that JJ made to change that Bengals game and and several others. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And let's just, let's keep in mind that when he was here, the Texans won a lot of division titles with a lot of crappy quarterbacks, including, you know, the times where he got the Texans to the playoffs with Brian Hoyer quarterbacking him one year and Ryan Fitzpatrick, Quarterbacking of the one, one, I mean, it's unbelievable the way he kind of dragged those teams to the playoffs because he made that defense great and all the stuff that we talked about catching touchdowns, uh, intercepting passes, returning fumbles for touch—all all of the stuff that he that has real impact on winning, real impact on a defense, and a defense matters because if
1: you don't have one, you have the 2020 Texans. Well, that's exactly right, Robert. You just nailed it because look. The Texans defense at one point was what was carrying the team. You know, when Wade Phillips came in and turned that defense around, and then, you know, several times after that, it was the defense, not the offense. And one of the, and the really the biggest reason was J.J. Watt. So to say that he didn't impact winning, okay, maybe he didn't, you know, throw 30 touchdowns or run for 20 touchdowns and things of that nature. But when you think about how great the Texans defense was at one point, and they were carrying the offense, which was not, I don't know how you can say that JJ didn't impact winning, at least as, as far as the Texans got with
0: winning this past year, he didn't affect winning because he's not the same JJ watt number one. And number two, you got to get guys that actually belong on a football field on the rest of your defense and maybe a defensive coordinator that isn't in his first year and has no idea what he's doing at this point. I mean, that stuff matters. Uh, any last thoughts because uh, I'm going to, I want to end this with a a big kind of thank you
1: for JJ. Do you have anything before I close out with that? Well, I just wish the best for JJ and as, as sad as I am to see him not be with the Texans, you know, unlike James Harden and, and others who have come through and have now gone, I, you know, I'm going to find it awfully hard not to root for JJ unless I guess he, you know, he plays against the Texans, but I don't know. The way the Texans are looking, Robert, I'm not even sure I'll care if JJ comes, you know, whatever team he ends up signing with, plays the Texans and his team beats them. I'm just not sure if I really even care at that point. But JJ is somebody that I'm just I'm going to pull for, even though he is no longer a part of the Houston Texans, even after he stops playing. I just wish nothing but the best for him, not just in his football career, but, you know, whatever he does after he stops playing, it's going to be great because he's JJ Watt. And he's going to make an impact there, too. We're three months
0: after Thanksgiving, but I've got to end with some thank yous for JJ because, you know, he deserves this. Thank you, JJ, for loving this city, touting this city, repping all our teams by wearing the gear to your press conferences, the Oilers and the Rockets gear and the Astros gear. And thank you for being everything you'd ever want in a sports hero, everything I would have wanted to be when I was a kid for being the guy who was looking to play catch with fans before games, who gave us honest answers after games, who brought us exhilaration yet still managed empathy for the weak and downtrodden in our community. When you were at your peak JJ, you were the best defensive player I've seen in my lifetime, bar none. You were also the most impactful human being that this city has ever seen. And thank you for giving Houston everything. And I mean, everything you had, every millisecond you represented us.
1: I love it. I, I love it. And and you touched on something that that I've always felt is in the honesty that, that JJ showed and, and just the, the directness that he had during press conferences. When you consider how many excruciatingly painful Bill O'Brien press conferences. We had to endure, whether you're a fan or a member of the media, <laughs> you know, and then you, you you know, versus when when you heard J.J. Watt be interviewed or speak, it, it's like night and day. You know, J.J. said what he felt. But again, just like he did in this situation, wanting his release, he did it in a way that, yes, it was direct. It was brutal. It could maybe even feel brutal, but it was done in a way that was nothing but class and just made you feel like, you know what, this guy is dead on. He was dead on with everything he said and he was just being honest about it. And And I think you, you had to appreciate that about JJ. Yeah,
0: the big thing for me as somebody that has been in this business for 30 years is he was somebody that just wouldn't give you the rote answers. He would give you real honest answers in a way that was interesting, that was intelligent, that could be funny at times, all of those things. And so, you know, again, for that, we, we say thank you. And unfortunately, we have to move on to the Rockets, which uh, it's not quite uh, as uh, uh, thank you to them these days. But uh, let's talk about them for a second because they went from a six-game winning streak to getting just regularly blown out and looking totally inept. And I guess after seven losses in a row, Steven, and this is as you and I are speaking, seven losses in a row, maybe Christian would should be getting some MVP conversation, huh?
1: (laughs) Boy, aren't you wondering? Because, I mean, it just seems as soon as he went out, and I know that, you know, they've they've had other injuries going on, you know, nagging to other players. But, boy, once Christian Wood went out of the lineup, it's like somebody just pulled the plug on the season. I mean, you still have a good ways to go in the season. But they basically just canceled out everything they did with that six-game winning streak. You know, the, the worst thing you can do, When you have a good winning streak, you know, five, six, seven in a row, is you turn right around and you lose five, six, seven in a row. Well, you just put yourself back in the hole you were and even deeper because you're deeper into the season, and now it's going to be even harder to climb out. But no, I got to tell you, Robert, (laughs) it's not going to happen, but you've got to feel like Christian Wood is the Rockets' MVP at this point because when he's in there, they look like such a different team than when he's out. I don't want to repeat what I said last week, but, you know,
0: get some size. The Rockets need to get some size. I know Andre Drummond and Blake Griffin are now on the market available. There's no trade that I see happening with the Rockets, and if they do become available after being waived, I, I see other teams would have the advantage, teams that could actually win, although Andre Drummond could sure help you rebounding because the Rockets are just a disaster on the on, on rebounding, and they have been for The last uh, couple of years, it's important to note also that the Rockets have the seventh worst record in the NBA. And if they get a top four pick, Oklahoma City doesn't get that pick. So the Rockets get the pick. But it's also important to note, Stephen, and, and to remember that even if they have one of the four worst records, it's slightly less than a coin flip odds that they get a top four pick. You know, for me, I, I've just said this again and again, and I can't repeat it over. I mean, I've said it on social media. I can't remember how many times I've said this on the podcast. But with the way the odds have been changed in, in, as far as the NBA is concerned, with the way that you're beholden to the Oklahoma City Thunder with that pick, it's it's not worth it to uh, just give up on the season and stop trying to win games. I still think you got to figure this out. And Steven Silas has got to, he's got to be uh, doing stuff that make you think he's a coach that can win big. And that's another thing that I'm watching this year is, okay, you looked good early, Steven, but recently, you know, there's been some rotation stuff. There's been some offensive things, uh, defensive breakdowns, all sorts of stuff that you go, well, is, is this really a guy that can win a championship you know, three or four years down the road, five years down the road?
1: Yeah, I just don't see, you know, why the Rockets should just do a total collapse and tank because it's just so different in the NBA, as you mentioned. And I, I think that the biggest thing for me, Robert, is that not only is it about the rotation and the injuries and, you know, the things that you can certainly point to, but the one thing that keeps jumping out at me, and I guess it's obvious, but it's just something that I, I keep thinking about as I see them make this slide, you know, when the Rockets are not shooting well, their defense goes in the tank as well. Uh, when they're not hitting their threes and, and just not making any of their shots, the, the defense suffers. And I think that's has been as, as big a part of the, the losing streak as anything else, is their defense that, that was doing so well there for a while, you know. but then when Christian Wood goes out, everything else falls to pieces. And you also don't have the pick-and-roll advantage where you can drive to the hoop the way you did when he was in there. So it's just a combination of things, but... Yeah, Steven Silas, I I just, I I pull for him because I think he's a great guy. And this is his first head coaching job. But obviously when when things are sliding the way the Rockets are, there are just so many things you can point to that you could probably do differently. Three quick things I want to mention. One of
0: them, John Wall, you got to start passing the ball around. I want to see the ball move in the offense. This one-on-five stuff that we just got rid of with James Harden is now seeping its way back. And I get it. There's not a whole lot of talent that he's out there with these days. But still, that's got to be something that you do as sort of, uh, of hey, this is the way we're going to do things from here on out. This is the habits that we're going to get into. The second thing, Jayshon Tate still has been fantastic. Get the ball to him some in the post. He's a good passer. He's incredible from two-point range. He's way above, uh, or I think slightly above 60%. So why not get the ball to him down low in the post? Either he's got something and he's going to go one-on-one or he's a good pastor and he's going to get himself out of it. The third thing is Victor Oladipo, that trade. And I said it at the time, Stephen, if, if that Oladipo thing doesn't work out as a long-term deal, and I don't know what you're going to get in a deal with Victor Oladipo. If he's not playing well, if he's hurt all the time, and if he's got $20 million left on his contract, what the hell could you possibly get for somebody like that? But I mean, that's a bad look as far as if, if the Rockets, all they got were those Nets picks. Like I said, I, I was worried about that because you're banking on them being really bad in three or four or five years. The first few years of those Nets picks are not any good. So you're you're talking about, you know, rolling the dice on
1: basically three picks maybe. Well, number one, regarding John Wall and, and just the, the stagnation, I mean, that that's been another issue. And I know we've talked about it before, You know, it seemed at the beginning of the season when they had all the energy, I wondered how long it would last where there was a lot of ball movement. There wasn't much standing around. Well, now you're seeing that, you know, with John Wall and some of the others. And I think, yeah, some of it is a question of just who you have around you, but it's certainly a major contribution to the losing streak. And number two, the more I I see of Jay Jay Sean Tate, the more I like him. And you know something else, as we're recording this, Robert, do you realize Jay Sean Tate, is the only player on the Rockets roster who has played in every single game. He's, he's appeared in every single Rockets game. That's it. <laughs> and, and you only hope that keeps up because they've certainly had just about every other guy out at one time or another. Now, some of that is not playing on back-to-back nights. I get that. But a lot of it's been due to injuries, COVID-19 protocol, this, that, and the other. But yeah, Jay Sean Tate, definitely a guy that we want to see more of. And uh, yeah, I, I just... I don't know. With the Rockets, I I keep trying to find some positives and keep wanting to root for them, but it's just getting harder and harder every game you watch where they're getting blown out and they dig themselves into such a deep hole that they just have to keep coming back. And Number three, with the the Victor Oladipo thing, and I said it right at the beginning, this was why I, I didn't like the fact that he was the only really major part you got in the James Harden trade along with all those draft picks, if Victor Oladipo is the main guy you got and you don't re-sign him or you let him completely walk away, you know, even if you trade him, what are you going to get for him at this point? And what, how productive has he been since he's been with the Rockets, except for little fits and starts here and there? That was the biggest reason that I, I just wish they had gotten something else, another key element in that James Harden trade besides Oladipo. This is something that I've thought about. I don't know if it's something that the Rockets would
0: be willing to do, but the Atlanta Hawks look terrible, and they look like they made two bad, bad moves contract-wise in Bogdanovich and Gallinari. Those contracts go on for the next three or four years. You have Victor Oladipo that matches up pretty well with both of those contracts. Do you, if you're the Rockets, consider trading Oladipo for one of those guys. And Bogdanovich isn't that bad. He hasn't played a whole lot. He's had some injuries this year. Uh, Gallinari always has injuries, so that's his problem. But at least he would give you some size and some three-point range in the meantime. But couldn't you make that deal, and should you make that deal? Because the Hawks may need to attach picks just to get rid of those contracts.
1: Well, that's a good point. I I hadn't thought about them, either one of them, so much. I mean, Gallinari, we saw him a bit in the postseason last year yeah, the injuries would, would be my main concern, but one of those two guys, I mean, let's put it this way. You couldn't do any worse. Could you with what you've got and you wouldn't be giving up near as much from trading Victor Oladipo as you did training James Harden, you know, to get Victor Oladipo. Yeah. Picks are, you know, some more currency
0: that you've got if something happens and you can package them and that sort of thing. And I don't know if the Hawks would be willing to do that. And the Hawks, you know, the pick, their picks might be pretty darn good the way things are going for them. But just something to consider. You know, I keep making the point for fans obsessed with tanking for high lottery picks that, look, listen to where some of these NBA All-Stars were picked. And this is a big list of All-Stars. Most of these guys, Steven, are last year's All-Star team. So let's, you know, you th- everybody thinks, oh, LeBron or Anthony Davis. Kawhi and Giannis were both picked number 15. Jokic number 41. This is an MVP potential guy this year. Jimmy Butler, number 30. Middleton, number 39. Donovan Mitchell and Trevor Booker, both great young players at number 13. Middleton, you know, goodness gracious, end of the first round, you know, he's the second guy on a team that supposedly has championship dreams. Bam Adebayo, number 14. Hall of Famer and NBA champ, Dirk Nowitzki, number nine. Now that's a lottery guy, but a low lottery guy. Rudy Gobert, 27. Uh, He's somebody that's on a team that's got the best record in the NBA, and he's the reason why with his defense. Uh, Kyle Lowry, number 24, NBA champion, second best guy on the championship team. Paul George, number 10. Uh, Vucevic, number 16. And maybe future all-star, Christian Wood undrafted Stephen look at that I mean that's a ton of all-star caliber guys that were not drafted in the lottery and just a couple of them that were but late lottery picks
1: well that's very true it's yeah that's quite a list and I bet you could take any of the major sports and and come up with guys just like that and an extremely long list the key though is the, the Rockets have got to be a better drafting team in order to get some of those guys but you're right it, it's not that the top five picks, you know, how many years in a row are you going to get those guys? It It's not just about them. You can find gems late in the first round and into the second round, but you've got to be able to, to know where to find them and to draft. And the, the Rockets just don't, they don't do consistently well in the draft, even if they have picks <laughs> that they, that they have to draft, which in some cases they haven't. So that's really the big key there is that, you know, if they're going to have those types of picks later in the first round, and maybe not a top four or five pick, they've got to know when to draft those guys. And so far of, of late, I certainly haven't seen that. I don't know what you're talking about
0: because you said, well, the Rockets haven't been a good draft. They haven't had a first round pick, I think, since Clint Capella. When they did draft in the first round with Daryl Morey drafting in the first round, you know, Carl Landry was good for a couple of years. I think injuries caught up to him, but he was a late first round pick. Capella was great for them and he's doing a great job uh, with the Atlanta Hawks, one of the few bright spots with them right now. I mean, they uh, to say that they have not drafted well. I, I don't think that's a fair statement.
1: I, I know, like I said, that of late they haven't had draft picks, but you, it's not like a list of what you just came up with. Carl Landry was a, a brief stint. Clint Capella would be the obvious name, but but I mean that I'm talking about a consistent list. Like with those guys, if you're going to have those kind of picks over the next few years. Then you're going to have to make them count. Yeah, you can say Marcus Morris maybe
0: wasn't that good, but Marcus Morris has had a pretty nice career, and he's a pretty little, pretty good little role player for the Clippers right now. And and he was somebody that they picked, I guess, at number fourteen for fourteen. That's that's pretty good. Now, if, if they picked the guy at fifteen, it would have been Kawhi Leonard. So that's a whole other story. But uh, yeah. just yeah. just something to think about for you fans going. Well, they got to get a high lottery pick. They got to get a high lottery pick. That's how you do anything in the NBA. Not true. No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. It's all how you scout in the draft. That's that's really the key. All right. So, the one team this week that actually had some eh, good news. I mean, it's not anything spectacular, Stephen, but the Astros did have some good news this week.
1: Well, at least they're not, they're not uh, at least we're not talking about them cheating as much anymore. So, anything that they're doing whether it's a signing of a minor player or something is, is certainly good news as opposed to the bad news we've had over the last couple of years. But they did um, they did make another signing, another veteran reliever, to add to their bullpen, Steve Cichette, uh to a minor league deal. So he's going to be competing for a spot. It's a $2.25 million deal, as I understand it. Um, he'll give you depth in the middle of the bullpen. Now, he's not really been a closer, which I guess is – you know, the main thing that fans keep pointing to is, well, the Astros going to get a closer. Well, at this point, you know, James Click has said more than once that he kind of goes by committee where that's concerned. You know, Ryan Presley got the bulk of that last year, and he may get the bulk of that this year. But there may be some other guys in the mix. But Shack at least provides some more depth in the middle of the bullpen. Stats aren't, you know, great, certainly. I mean, he's another guy that's, that's struggled and been up and down. He had a 5.40 ERA with the White Sox last year, but he had 30 saves in both 2013 and 2014. So, I mean, he he does have some closing experience, just not very recently. He's another right arm pitcher, kind of a sidearm delivery, kind of a, I guess it would remind you of Joe Smith, who's another guy that the Astros are hoping for that can provide some depth in the bullpen as well. A solid veteran, which is
0: always good out of the bullpen. I mean, there's no argument that this is at least something but I guess the next question I have to ask, Stephen, and this is a big question if you're an Astros fan, are you more concerned that they don't have a legitimate guy you can count on closer, or are you more concerned that maybe they don't have enough depth as far as starting pitching? Because with we've talked about it, all these young guys coming back uh, that you know have just pitched a short season. We don't know where their arms are going to be because they're going to have to extend out from – 60 games to 160 games. And and all these guys that have never even pitched a full major league season in their lifetime, when you're talking about, you know, Javier or you're talking about uh, Fromber Valdez or, you know, just the, the whole list of the guys that they've got as as starters, except for Granke.
1: No, mine is definitely, my, my concern is definitely more the starting depth. I mean, the, the closer, if you can do it by committee, then that's great as long as you get it done. But what you were saying along with that, Robert is, there's obviously going to be some regression to the mean. I mean, as, as fantastic as Fran as was this past year, it's only been one season, and we've seen him struggle from year to year to year up until last season. And then, you know, you add the full 162-game season, provided that can actually happen, or actually it's 154, you know, whether it is or whether it's shorter because of COVID or something else, heaven forbid, that's going to be the key, you know, and then, Are your young guys going to be able to do this again when you're going to have some fans in the stands, at least? In many cases, you're going to have a second year, You know, not just that your arms are going to be extended more, but there's just going to be more pressure. I mean, there's going to be more pressure to exceed what you did the first year. Last year was just an anomaly, let's be honest. It was a shortened season. There was a lot of weird stuff going on. You're going to have to do it again this year. So, yeah, my biggest concern is... How are they going to do in the starting rotation? You know, are you going to even be able to see Forrest Whitley finally get to a point where he can be part of that rotation? Or is he not going to be in the mix? Are they going to have to sign somebody else? Maybe when the season starts to get into the back of that rotation to shore it up. There's still a lot of questions where that's concerned. Yeah, Colin McHugh, Brad
0: Peacock are not walking through that door, apparently, as, as guys that you can start McHugh. Uh, did did he sign with the Rays? I I, I thought I saw something where he
1: was, he might be signing with the Rays. Did, did that happen? I, I did not see that. I I didn't. And, you know, and even Austin Pruitt is not ready to come back. You know, you signed him to kind of provide some of that depth last year, but he hasn't been able to give you anything either. So at least at the beginning of the season, he's not going to be available for you either.
0: The other thing that was good news besides C-Sheck was Dusty Baker got his vaccine. So that's good. He's, he's all set with uh, both of his vaccine shots and, Several of the Astros players they found had antibodies in their system. That is good because, you know, if if they can get through training camp without a lot of COVID setbacks and the vaccine should be rolling out, I think more for everybody around April or May, beginning of the season, then we might say, Stephen, that the Astros are in good shape this year and might not have the, the setbacks, you know, from COVID stopping them as the, as the year goes along. It's something. It's a little something. we little hope anyway. Hey,
1: whatever we can use right now, Robert, we need to take it because, I mean, this COVID thing, as we've seen over the last year now, I mean, can you believe it's been almost a year? You know, next month will mark a full year since this whole thing not really started, but when it really reached its peak to the point where we had to shut down. So anything you can say, I mean, yeah, it's absolutely great that Dusty was able to get the vaccine, you know, considering his age and things of that nature, you definitely want that to happen. And the more good news we have out of that with the players are concerned, you know, the biggest question, Robert, and this is a question for every team, really, over the course of a season, as long as baseball is, even if, you know, it's not a full 162-game season, is, you know, can these players maintain these protocols for that long a period of time, day after day after day? I mean, the NBA players are having trouble with it. The NHL players are having trouble with it. And even in some cases, the NFL players were having trouble. So it's going to be a question with every team, but at least with the Astros, you know, we've got those two pieces of good news. We'll take it. Some other good news too, right? Some prognostications that are good. Well, apparently not everybody hates the Astros, Robert. I was quite surprised when I saw the projection that was made by Baseball Prospectus, if I can say it, Baseball Prospectus. Their projection model Has the Astros going 93 and 69 and easily winning the AL West. How about that? So, you know, whereas most of the national media is not only bashing them because of the cheating incident, but they're rooting against them, trying to come up with anything they can to say that the Astros are going to have a lousy year, they're not going to be doing anything, they might finish second at best in the West. Well, here's baseball prospectus saying they're going to be 93 and 69 and running away with the division. I'll take that, Robert.
0: Right. And I I think it is a good sign for, you know, where they think the Astros talent is at the moment, you know, baseball America, some of the publications are like, well, the Astros don't have as much in the minor leagues, you know, as they've had uh, over the last few years. And we know that, but uh, where they are at the major league level is is really good. And, And it's just about, you know, replenishing that minor league system now. Uh, without you know draft picks that you you missed last year, you're going to miss this year. Uh, you, you did though help your depth a little bit because we talked about you know signing a couple of really good international players over the off season, guys that could be potentially ready not too long down the road. And the others, the other exciting thing, Stephen, that you know we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but it's worth mentioning again as we get closer and closer to the season. It's going to be kind of fun if you're an Astros fan. That you can go to a ballpark that's not Minute made and we we don't know how many fans are going to be able to go there, but you've got another choice. You can go see where we are on on a AAA level because you know you do have the Skeeters, and and it, it is going to be here, and it's it's not a deal where hey, I keep hearing about these guys, but I haven't seen them, so you know what do they really look like? You know how is Forrest Whitley doing? Well, let me go out and I can
1: go watch For, Forrest Whitley in a Skeeters game, right? And and you don't have to go stay in a hotel to do it, Robert. And, you know, that's the great thing about the restructuring of the minor leagues. And and listen, I have mixed emotions about that whole situation with Major League Baseball only because there were so many towns that lost teams or, you know, they're not going to have that kind of affiliation just because of the restructuring. But, you know, from a personal standpoint, if you're an Astros fan, you've got to love it because not only do you have – your Sugarland Skeeters, right there in your own backyard, they're the AAA team. You know, they're not just some independent league team that you go watch. You know, because there's no other baseball, the Astros may be out of town or what have you. This is your AAA club. I mean, you're gonna be seeing these guys as soon as tomorrow. You know, you can go watch a Skeeters game the next day or the next week. They're gonna be with the big club, and then you, you can go to Corpus and check out the Hooks, and that's your Double A team. So, I mean, that's what's really great about the whole thing, Robert, is that if you're an Astros fan, you you can not only see the big club, but you can go see their farm teams, their Double A AA and Triple A teams, you know, just a few hours apart. I mean, that that is something that's really going to be nice to see this year. Have
0: you ever been to Corpus?
1: I, I don't I, I don't think I've ever been there for anything. I have been there, yes. I've been there at least twice, I think maybe three times. I have been to Corpus. Now, I've never seen the Hooks play because it was I think the last time I was in Corpus was in the 90s, so it's it's been a while, but yes, I have been there.
0: Not a whole lot more baseball-wise, the Padres keep signing guys long-term and making trades and the Padres are going to be a they're going to be a little booger in in Major League Baseball for the next few years with all the moves that they've made,
1: huh? Yeah, they certainly are. I mean, uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. signs a contract that by the time it's up, which it it probably isn't even going to last as long as it actually is, my granddaughter will be grown. I mean, that's how scary that is. 14 years, you know, she's already six years old, so she's going to be practically grown by the time that contract is up. Yeah, the Padres are definitely making some noise. You know, you have... I, I was very relieved to see that Trevor Bauer signed even though it was with the Dodgers at least he's in the National League I didn't want to see him in the American League so at least there was some good news there that even though he went to the Dodgers he's not in the American League so I was happy to see that happening but yeah watch out for the Padres they could be something to watch in the next few years I kind of feel like Trevor Bauer's whininess will fit
0: right in with Dodger fans
1: yeah they, it was apropos maybe he'll uh, he and Joe Kelly you know probably be roommates or something if if Joe's even still on the club by that point Well, I got to tell you, Stephen,
0: it was just good to talk sports with you after this last week. Talk sports, anything but talking about, hey, how's the electricity going or do I got water or, or, you know, how long is this going to be lasting? And it's just it's just nice.
1: Yeah, it's really great to talk to you, Robert. And in fact, uh, you know, we were supposed to podcast this past Monday. And what was it? Ten minutes before we were to record is when you texted me and said, guess what? I have no power it was out like that morning I think is when it went out for you and I'm glad that you were able to go to a friend's house and stay safe and warm and that you're back and that you're okay so that that's obviously the main thing but yeah it's great to talk to you and just just to talk and and even do a podcast to kind of loosen things up from what's been a really crazy week or so well for all of our listeners hopefully
0: you've got electricity back you've got some semblance of water you've got maybe cable or what i mean i found a place to stay where there was some electricity but we then lost you know internet we lost cell service uh pretty much everything else uh still still maintained water so that was good i got really lucky and i want to thank uh you know my friends that that uh were able to help me out with all that my friend kevin and my sister's in-laws Ruthie and Johnny were fantastic to me. So they're not not—they're probably not going to hear this, but thanks, thanks to them. I really appreciate it. Thanks anyway, it. right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really good to be doing this again and, and talking to you listeners. And good luck with everybody, with everything that you're going through. And as always, just message us through Twitter, Facebook, or you can email us, the email address, info at houstonsportstalk.net. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk.